It's the season of Advent as I'm recording this. It's a time before Christmas where we look forward to the birth of Jesus, where we light candles, read devotions, and we focus on something other than just goodies and shopping. Most of us think of Advent as primarily these four weeks, but did you know the whole story behind it is far more expansive and exciting? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll talk about not only that, but about a second Advent in our lesson today entitled, The Complete and Extraordinary Advent Story, Seven Miraculous Preparations God Made for Jesus' Birth and Beyond. When we think about traditional Advent, we think about the meaning of the word, and it means arrival or coming, and it refers to the coming of Jesus to be born as a baby. Traditionally, we celebrate it by lighting candles, reading devotions, preparing our hearts for Christmas. Now, some of you may not have observed Advent growing up. It's primarily some of the liturgical churches that do it, but it seems like it's spread around more, at least where people have Advent calendars or things like that. The symbolism of the wreath, if you do a traditional Advent, represents the eternal life possible through Jesus. The candles represent hope, peace, joy, love, and finally in the center, there's a white candle representing that Jesus is the light of the world. Now this gives us a spiritual focus. Again, it's something to think about rather than the overwhelming consumerism and, let's face it, goody consumption of the holidays. It's all wonderful, but there's so much more to the totality of Advent. When we look at it more closely, we find that the coming of Jesus to save and dwell with his people expands both backwards and forwards from the beginning of time till the end of time. That's what I want to talk about in this lesson. The seven miraculous preparations for Jesus' birth and beyond that took not just five weeks, but thousands of years, and that all came together in the birth of Jesus that happened, as the Bible tells us in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time. Now remember, as we look at the events and the places that I'm going to share with you, this teaches us several foundational things about Christianity, again, that go beyond Christmas. First of all, that the Christian faith is rooted in real events that happened in verifiable history. Second, that God works in and through history. And number three, that the preparations God made for the birth of his people, for the birth, excuse me, for the birth of his son, took place in real places. This is not some fanciful, mythical story. And it's fitting to review this material in preparation for Christmas because Jesus' birth was a real historical event. It's not some long, long ago and far away fairy tale. It did happen a good while ago, but it isn't a fairy tale. It's a true story. And though we, we know that all of these things happen in real places, we do see God's supernatural hand behind them all. And it starts out, as I said a minute ago, in a real place long, long ago. Actually, the whole story starts in Eden. God created a perfect world where he placed people created in his image in a perfect garden where he could walk and talk with them. 
But somehow that wasn't enough for them, and they disobeyed his one command that had consequences far more devastating than they can imagine, which, by the way, sin usually does. When we do something wrong, we can't even begin to imagine what it's going to do to us. And even though they were judged for their sin, at the same time God judged them, he promised a Savior who would heal the breach between God and people. Now, the story continues, of course, down where God, from working with all of humanity, he now focuses his salvation story on one people, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became a nation when God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Now, after he delivered them, this is really important, and I know you're thinking, now, what all does this have to do with Advent and everything? It, it has a lot to do with it, so bear with me, because we need to know the backstory to really appreciate the story of Advent of Christmas. After God delivered the people, they, we all know, you know, from seeing the movie The Ten Commandments, whether we read the Bible or not, they go out into the desert, they camp at Mount Sinai, and they get the Ten Commandments. We're all familiar with that. But the Ten Commandments were just part of the overall covenant with God. And the covenant was, the covenant or agreement, was that if they obeyed and worshipped God, they would be blessed, they would be kept safe, and in their land. If not, they would be punished by captivity outside the land. Now, covenants are not to be taken lightly. It was not, the covenant, by the way, wasn't just for their sake. They were God's chosen people. But they were chosen by him, not just for him to give them goodies and blessings and protection. They were supposed to be a light and a witness to the nations around them to tell them about the God who wanted a relationship with them. They were to do that by not only doing obeying his commands, but they were to worship him in a way they were to have a lifestyle that would, was to, supposed to be very different from the idolatrous, immoral cultures around them. Now, in turn, God promised to protect and bless them. That was their covenant. You can read the details in Deuteronomy 29. Now, just as God keeps his word in blessing, he also keeps his word in judgments. If they did not follow their part of the covenant, if they worshipped other gods and lived without following God's laws, God said he would discipline them by first sending prophets to remind them, then by troubles, and ultimately, if they didn't repent, by removing them from the land. And the details of this whole pattern are in the Old Testament books and the prophets. And I really encourage you next year, I'm going to be guiding you through reading the Bible in chronological order, and you'll see very clearly how this happened. Sadly, we know they didn't obey and they were judged. But again, you might be thinking, well, what's this have to do with Advent? Well, everything, because this is where it gets really, really interesting. Though the removal from the land was the ultimate horror for them, it also initiated a series of seven preparations that would culminate in the birth of Jesus. We'll now go through them. I'll identify each one, and then I'll point out why each one was important and explain how God ultimately used each one of these things for good as he prepared the world for the advent of Jesus. 
Preparation number one, a series of deportations. Now, as I said earlier, when the people didn't obey God, didn't obey the warnings of the prophets, he said that he would remove them from the land. The first major deportation took place in 722, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom and scattered the exiles throughout the entire Middle East. They didn't return. The second deportation, and actually it was a series of them, started in 576 under Nebuchadnezzar when Jerusalem was destroyed, and this was primarily to Babylon and surrounding areas. Now an opportunity was given for the people of Israel to return back to their homeland from Babylon in 70 years. But many of them, in fact the majority, did not return. They stayed where they were. And we see this whole story in Ezra, Nehemiah, and and Esther. Many continued living in that area. Not only that, there were numerous other migrations that took place for political trade, various different reasons to Egypt, Rome, the Jewish people scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin. Now, why this preparation was important? Here we have groups of Jewish people who worship the one true God, and they were now scattered throughout the Mediterranean world, where many retained their faith. They were blessed to be a blessing. They were blessed to share Jehovah God with the nations, and they couldn't do that with all of them sort of huddled together in Jerusalem and the tiny nation of Israel. Just look at some of the maps that show where they were scattered. Now, if you, um, I, I also have a video that goes through all the maps, and I have handouts, and I have all sorts of things that go along with this lesson. So if you're listening on the podcast, please do go to www.bible805.com for additional materials so that you can see the maps. But I think you can picture the Middle East in your mind, even if if you don't do that. Now, we had the Assyrian deportations, just to review, that scattered them all throughout the Assyrian Empire. Then we had the Babylonian deportations that scattered them a similar area, but somewhat further south. And then additional Roman deportations People just went to all kinds of different areas in the service of Rome and because of Roman trade and various things related to them. So basically they're scattered all over the known world. Preparation number two, the development of the synagogue system. Though it was in the process of being developed earlier during the Babylonian captivity, the priestly leadership realized that they needed to formalize a system to worship God that was not dependent on the temple. The temple had been destroyed. Many Jewish people were scattered throughout the world, and they would never be able to return to Jerusalem. Now, out of this realization, the synagogue system was developed, wherein if there were ten Jewish men, they could form what's called a minyan, and from that, a synagogue. Now, why this preparation was important. The synagogue, these houses of worship, where people knew the one true God and studied the scriptures appointed to the Messiah, were now spread throughout the entire known world. Now, preparation number three, the formalization of the Hebrew scriptures. During approximately the same time as the synagogue was formalized, after the Babylonian captivity, members of the great assembly or men of the great synagogue formalized what we know as our Old Testament today. Now, Ezra was one of these leaders. He led one of the groups of the exiles back to Jerusalem in 459 B.C. 
From the Dead Sea Scrolls and other sources, we know that the books that we have in our Old Testament are the same ones that they had. Now, I have a series of lessons on how we got our Bible. Please check those out if you want to know this history in more detail. Now, why this preparation was important. The scriptures that they had from God, our Old Testament, tell one consistent story. One set of prophecies which met which meant that Jewish people all over the world studied the same scriptures, including the many passages that predicted the coming of the Messiah. However, a problem was developing and that their scriptures were primarily in Hebrew, when fewer and fewer people spoke Hebrew. Now, from the time of the Assyrian captivity on, the majority of the people spoke Aramaic, which was the universal language of the world at that time. Aramaic uses the same alphabet as Hebrew, in sort of the same way that English and Spanish do. English and Spanish use the same alphabet, but they're two different languages, and it was the same way with Aramaic and Hebrew. While this was going on, though, however, another universal language was growing in use, and that was because of a man named Alexander. And this leads us to preparation number four, the adoption of a new universal language, the Koine Greek. Koine Greek, and it was one of the many dialects of Greek at the time, but it was the one that was adapted and spread by Alexander the Great. Now, in addition to being a great military leader, he was a brilliant scholar and philosopher in many areas. And you would sort of expect that. Aristotle, as in the philosopher, Aristotle, as in Plato, Aristotle, etc. Um, that was his tutor. That was his personal tutor. And he greatly believed in the superiority of the Greek language, the Greek culture. And so, as he conquered the entire known world at that time, he absorbed into his army soldiers from many lands and he decreed that Greek culture was important for them and that in addition to just being part of the Greek cultural experience that meant he made Koine Greek the official language. Now Koine Greek is not some hidden scholarly language. It was a dialect of the Greek language that Alexander the Great developed and enforced its use for his armies and the people he conquered. It was a common dialect and it was extremely precise. Now what thrills scholars today, which is the different tenses and how they are so precise on the meaning of things, it was the same reason we surmise that Alexander picked that because it was a language that was designed to keep his army functioning well with no confusion over the meaning of commands. And it was also very precise and useful for administering a vast empire of divergent people. Now why this preparation was important. What the conquering army spoke Everybody learned to speak. They had to. Everyone in the entire known world now spoke, read, and wrote in the same language, Koine Greek. It may not have been their home language, but everyone knew it, similar to how English is today to many, though they may speak another language at home. Now, I have a map, and if you don't have access to the maps, if you're not looking at this through the video, um, you can see how Alexander's 
empire just spread throughout the entire known world. It was absolutely huge. Now, this was sort of good news, bad news about the coin. There was sort of good news, bad news about the Koine Greek as the universal language, because a good part is everyone in this part of the world could communicate, and it remained that way for over 500 years. The bad news, though, initially related to the Jews. And remember the three significant events that we previously talked about. The dispersion of the Jews all over this area, the development of the synagogue system where they all worshipped, the formalization of their scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. They had all these things going for them. The bad news is that the Jewish scriptures were in Hebrew, but most of the Jewish people now spoke either Aramaic or Greek. They couldn't read or understand God's word in Hebrew anymore, any more than a Hebrew Bible would make sense to us today. Now, obviously, this was a problem. Yet again, God used Alexander and his influence to bring about the next step. And that is, unlike many in the ancient world, Alexander held the Jews in high regard, as did one of his generals who divided the empire after his death. This general was Ptolemy, this general was Ptolemy of Egypt, and his son, Ptolemy Philadelphus, was responsible for the next step in our progression, which is preparation number five, the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the son of Alexander's general Ptolemy, lived from 281 to 246 BC, and he decided to have the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, into what became known as the Septuagint. Now, there's so much more to the story of the Septuagint, uh, lots of fanciful tales, and but a lot of, of good history. And I do have a whole lesson on that. Again, please check out the lessons on how we got our Bible. But the key thing is that it, what and what's not disputed, is that the content of the Hebrew Bible was now available widely to the Greek-speaking world. Now, why this preparation was important. Everyone in the entire known world could now read the Old Testament in the same language. It was no longer the language of primarily the priests, but of the secular people as well. Now, the Septuagint was a popular, easy-to-understand translation, and it's the one quoted by Jesus and the New Testament writers. So where are we now? So far, we have God's chosen people, representing the one true God, scattered all over the known world, worshiping Jehovah and looking forward to a Messiah, while reading the same Holy Scriptures in the same language. But what was still needed, how do you tie all of them together? Well, that link was provided by Rome. The Roman Empire was responsible for the final two preparations needed before the birth of Jesus, and they were preparation number six, the development of the Roman roads. This was the most incredible system for transportation in the ancient world. It linked all the parts of the Roman and formerly Alexander's empire and many of these roads still survive today. They were so well built. The importance of this preparation is linked to one more that was the final preparation needed before the birth of Christ and that was the Pax Romana. 
The term, and I'm quoting a historian here, the term Pax Romana, which literally means Roman peace, refers to the time period from 27 BC to 180, we call it AD, this particular quote says CE, which means common era, AD is the same thing. Anyway, in the Roman Empire, this 200-year period saw unprecedented peace and economic prosperity throughout the empire, which spanned from England in the north to Morocco in the south to Iraq in the east. Now, if you've been paying attention, you realize that all these developments took place in pretty much the same area. God was doing his work for centuries. Now, the results of the Roman roads and the Pax Romana, this is just a great quote here from the Christian History Institute, where historian Lionel Cassian said, quote, the first two centuries of the Christian era were great days for a traveler. A planned network of good roads gave him access to all major centers, and the routes were policed well enough for him to ride them with relatively little fear of bandits. Because of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace of the Emperor Augustus, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who died about 135 AD, declared, There are neither wars, nor battles, nor great robberies, nor piracies, but we may travel at all hours and sail from east to west. Now, why these two preparations were important. The common people could now use the roads and travel in relative safety, and they did. Now, with all of this in place, the fullness of time came, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But, of course, the advent of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus, is only the beginning of his story, because he didn't stay a baby, but grew to manhood, taught, died, and rose again. And after his resurrection is when the extraordinary meaning of the Advent preparations becomes fully apparent on the day of Pentecost because Jews from all over the world were able to travel safely to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Remember it tells us in Acts 2, 1 and 5 through 11, now when the day of Pentecost came, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, and this was of the Holy Spirit descending, a crowd came, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Now, if you look at a map of the Roman roads, and please do look at this either in the video or in the handouts in the video that I have just on the maps, this is so exciting because you can actually find on the map these various places, Pontius and Cappadocia and Lycia and Pamphylia, and you can go down and, and you can see the ones in North Africa and all the different places, and you can see by the red lines of the Roman road, how they all were able to literally walk to Jerusalem from all over the known world. Thousands of years of history converged on that day. Jews were meeting in Jerusalem from all over the known world because their scriptures told them they should come at that time. They were all expecting a Messiah. 
who was preached to the, who had been preached to them in their synagogues in these far-off lands, all safely traveling on the Roman roads under the Roman peace to get to Jerusalem. Who could have imagined that day? Certainly not a captive who lived over a thousand years earlier, shackled and starving, who was forced marched away from Jerusalem to Mesopotamia. He would have no had had no idea that one day one of his descendants would travel safely to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost, or a Jewish rabbi whose family stayed in Babylon over 500 years earlier, but who could now travel in safety to Jerusalem for the holy days, or the thousands of other faithful God-worshippers scattered throughout the ancient world for a multitude of reasons who were now in Jerusalem. Who could have imagined that these men and women would hear a fisherman named Peter quote the Old Testament fulfillment that they'd been taught about and prayed for, and that through his sermon they would find Jesus. As extraordinary as that day was, the miracles of God's preparation don't stop with Pentecost, because this same preparations were used by the Apostle Paul and the many others on that day to share the gospel, into this world united by religion, language, culture, linked by safe and good roads, the Apostle Paul would go from place to place, and as his pattern was, first he'd go into the Jewish synagogue. Then he would preach to them out of the Greek scriptures, and he would tell them, about Jesus, that their scriptures that they'd been studying for all these years predicted the long-awaited Messiah, and that that Messiah was Jesus, the Savior. If you look again at a map of where the Jews were scattered throughout the time of the apostles, and then again superimpose in your mind the Roman roads, and what you know in the book of Acts, you can see how he went to exactly these same areas that we've been talking about to share the good news about Jesus. I wonder if the Apostle Paul thought about all that had to come together for this to be possible. To review our seven preparations, the Jewish diaspora, where they were scattered throughout the entire known world, the development of the synagogue, the formalization of the Hebrew scriptures, Alexander conquering the world and commanding that everyone speak Greek, the scriptures translated into Greek, the building of the Roman roads, and the Pax Romana. I imagine Paul didn't think about the history of it at all, as he just did his work, any more than we are aware of all the things God brings together in our lives to protect us and to accomplish his will. A few application notes for us. This lesson is a great reminder that nothing happens by accident. Nothing is left to chance in the sovereign plan of God. It'll probably take some time, more time than we would like, for God's plans to work out in our lives and our world. But they will. Because the Advent story isn't over. There's a second Advent coming, when Jesus comes again and makes all things new.
And we can be just as certain of that as the people were of his first advent. I suspect that it will surprise many in the same way his first advent did, which is why he doesn't tell us to be trying to figure out the signs and dates, because he told his disciples categorically that that wasn't what they were to be about. What he did want them to focus on, he tells us in Acts 1, 7, and 8, where he said, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are to be His witnesses, which He's always wanted His people to be, to be the light brighter than an Advent candle in our dark world until Jesus comes and we once again live as we were created to live, walking with our God forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes for this lesson, related resources, and helpful links at www.bible805.com. And do check it out. Uh, please check out the video, the associated video that has the maps and just all kinds of uh, informational things on the YouTube channel, the Bible 805 channel. Just go to youtube.com uh, slash Bible 805. Lots of good stuff for you there. Please do tell others about this podcast and about the video. In closing, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim and writer for Jesus, and I'd like to close with his benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.